judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Last week, we spent our time together examining the reason that Jude was urgent in this exhortation for believers to earnestly contend for the faith which he provides in verse 3. And we spent much time dealing with verse 3 and, and, and looking, examining what was being stated and the significance of what Jude was stating within that verse. And the reason this was so important, this urgent exhortation was given, was due to the deceivers who had quietly infiltrated the church with the intention of perverting the grace of God, which is ultimately to deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. In verse 4, Jude provides this, this explanation. He said, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the reason that, that Jude is so urgent in his exhortation to earnestly contend for the faith. Jesus, Paul, and Simon Peter all warned of such deceivers and false teachers, even referencing uh, or referring to them or making reference of them as wolves in sheep's clothing. Both Jesus and Paul did such. Paul explained in Corinthians that it should be no surprise to us that there are false teachers who make themselves out to be the apostles of Christ and ministers of righteousness. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15, we read this last week, but let's look at this again. For such are false apostles, workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And we saw last week, I pointed out to you the noun lasciviousness, as it's mentioned here uh, in uh, verse 4 of Jude. It says, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. The word lasciviousness, or noun lasciviousness, lasciviousness in turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, as Jude mentions, means licentiousness. And licentiousness refers to a lack of moral restraint. And the word licentiousness, as well as the word license, are both taken from the root word licentia, which means freedom. And so these false teachers, as Jude warns, were teaching that God's grace provides a license to sin. And yet in Romans, Paul addressed both the sufficiency of God's grace to forgive us, regardless of the abundance of our sin, and the sufficiency of God's grace as well to deliver us from the power and bondage of sin. In Romans 5.20, he said, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But then just two verses later, Paul states in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, What, then sh- or what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So here Paul says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But then in the next few moments he states, what shall we say then? So are we we going to just continue in sin because we know that God's grace is abundant and greater than sin? Then he says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead, how shall we that are separated from sin, set free from sin, how shall we live any longer therein? And the word denying, when we read verse 4 as well of Jude, he says, these were ungodly men turning the grace of God into 
lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The word denying, in, in denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, means to deny, to repudiate, or to disown. And those who teach grace, and specifically relating to those who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And so those who teach grace as though it is a license to sin are guilty of denying and rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. For one to teach others or live life in an example of using grace as an excuse for sin is to act completely against the grace of God and deny the purpose for which such grace was given. Again, why Paul explains that we are set free from the condemnation of sin. For where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So he's saying no matter how great our sin may be, that God's grace is still yet greater than our sin. However, in the next breaths, Paul then says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So do again we continue in this for the purpose of grace abounding? God forbid. For we are set free from sin, is what Paul is saying. And so for one to pervert the purpose of grace from that which has God has demonstrated and manifested and given unto us, bestowed unto us, that we might be set free from sin, from its bondage, from its power, from its penalty or condemnation, for one to pervert that purpose of the power of God's grace to set us free from sin, to making it a license or freedom to sin, is to deny not only the purpose for such grace, but also reject the lordship of the one who has provided this grace. Because he has provided this grace that we might be set free unto his glory not to continue in sin. What's more is that one, for one to live in unrighteousness while using grace as an excuse is, the, is ultimately denying and rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so to live in unrighteousness while claiming grace is the means by which we're able to do so it is tremendously is to tremendously pervert the grace of God. That's not what grace is at all. And those who've received grace should understand this and do not have a desire to excuse sin with the word grace. Now again, I want to point out to you, because we need to be aware of this, thank God that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. I mean, this is the, this is the beauty of this, this truth of this redemptive work of God in Jesus Christ on our behalf, that where we were abundant in sin, God's grace is yet more abundant. And so we rejoice in that truth. But if we really understand this in, to any degree, then we also recognize that this grace sets us free from that which bound us. It does not give us liberty to act as though we are in bondage when we've been set free and to excuse it in such manner. So now moving forward into verses 5 through 7, we move into the next section of this book, the next paragraph, if you will. And within verses 5, Jude provides three historical examples as warnings against the danger of unbelief which includes a warning concerning the failure to live according to the faith. Now remember verse 3 is key to this entire epistle because Jude is saying, I wanted to write unto you concerning this common salvation, yet I find it necessary that I write unto you that you earnestly contend for the faith. And here's why. Because there are those who crept in unawares. There are those who have appeared, who've infiltrated the body. There are those who've infiltrated the church. 
and they've done so even rising up from within, as other scriptures tell us, and they've done so in a manner to then excuse sin away by saying grace is God's provision for sin, and therefore it, we're free because uh, to sin as though, as though there's no law at all. Now, let me, let me reference this. I wasn't intending to do this, but let me go back to this for a moment. For a moment. In Corinthians, uh, Paul makes some interesting statements concerning this, and it provides great clarity to argue against or to refute what is known as antinomianism. And again, antinomianism would be that, that really we're not under the law at all. No law exists, and there's no need for the law because we have grace. Now, we are not under the law, but under grace. That's true. But notice what Paul says in Corinthians. Whenever he's speaking about uh, reaching both Jew and Gentile alike, and he goes through his discourse concerning the fact that to those who are without law, or to those with, who are under the law, as one who is under the law. So Paul is saying, I deal with the Jew, understanding where the Jew is coming from, and I, I evangelize the Jew, and I'm able to use his own belief system to explain the truth of Christ and the gospel in a meaningful way. But then he says to those without law, or who are not under the law, as one without, or those without law is one who's not under the law, but then he says, but under the law of Christ. So Paul then qualified the statement, so he doesn't say, oh, I have no law by which I live. He says, but the law of Christ. So what is the law of Christ? Well, that's righteousness. So Paul is saying that I am not bound to Judaism by any means, and I'm not bound to religious law, and I'm under grace, but yet being under this grace binds me to Christ. And how does it bind me to Christ? Unto righteousness. So living out the truth of this redemption in righteousness and unto righteousness, unto Christ. And so Paul makes that clear. So again, uh, this, this idea that we are under, not under the law but under grace, as Paul clearly teaches in Romans, which is absolutely true. But at the same time, we recognize he is not saying, therefore, grace provides freedom to live lawlessly, no, grace provides freedom to live righteously. We can now live in and out the righteousness of God as it's been imputed unto us. Uh, the very righteousness of Jesus is imputed unto us, credited to our account, and therefore now righteousness is within because of Jesus who dwells within, and so righteousness then is manifested outwardly. And so that's really what, what Paul is dealing with here. And so Jude gives us these examples in this particular text as warnings concerning the failure to live according to the faith. Because again, to earnestly contend for the faith while others are coming and saying that grace is a means or excuse or license to sin, and well, don't worry about sin, but grace in that mentality, then Paul is saying, or Jude is saying here, he, he gives these warnings and these historical examples of what has been prior that we might take heed to these, or the reader might take heed to these which is to not live according to the faith. So let's look at verse, we begin in verse 5. We're going to look at three of these quickly and then go back to verse 5. In verse 5, Jude provides the first example of Israel's exodus or deliverance from Egypt. Then in verse 6, Jude provides the example of the fallen angels who left their first estate. Then in verse 7, Jude provides the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now one may question as to why Jude provides such a warning as he does in these three examples, which he does provide to emphasize the importance of, of the warning. And as we've already discovered in verse 4, Jude's warning concerns the fact that there are those who will teach that grace provides freedom or excuse for sin, and that although the faith has once and all and for all been delivered unto the people, there is a distinct difference between possessing a knowledge of the truth and living in the truth. And Jude is going to make that distinction here. 
reason that Jude urges believers to contend for the faith, and his exhortation is much more than a charge to fight for Christianity, though it's included, of course, but is more importantly a charge to know, to understand, to embrace, and in the truth of the faith which has been delivered, delivered unto those who are followers of Jesus Christ to live therein. And so the exhortation to earnestly contend for the faith Yes, that has to do with defending and fighting. We've already seen that, but it also has to do with laboring, with a striving. And as, as excuse me, Paul says in Philippians, that we are to striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we are striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so there is, this is not only talking about fighting everything, though fighting is included without question. Yet it is about us knowing and understanding and embracing this truth of the faith which has once and all, for all time been delivered unto those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you think of it like this and the importance again of the faith and believers engaging in the church defending the faith, use this here Old Testament example of Israel as the first example. And you have to remember that the scriptures teach us, even in the book of Romans, Let's turn there for a moment. Look at Romans uh, chapter 9. Because I want, to, I want to show you something in relation to the church earnestly contending for the faith. Notice what Paul says in, in chapter 9 verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Let me point this out, as I have many times. Paul did not say here, many people misquote this verse many times. He does not say, I wish I were a curse. He said, for I could wish. He is, this, this would be what would be referred to as hyperbole in a sense. He is exaggerating, he's overemphasizing a point because of the continual sorrow and grief that he has. And he's saying, for I could wish. It would, this is how sorrowful I am. And then he goes on to say, verse 4, who are Israelites? To whom, now notice, here's what I wanted to point you to. To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, the worship of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Now notice what Paul says here. Paul is pointing out that those he grieves over are his brothers according to the flesh. Those who are of Abraham, of the flesh. Those who are of Jacob, Israel, in the flesh. He's talking about these who are Israelites in the flesh. But then notice how he categorizes them and defines them in verse 4 again. Who are Israelites? To, now, he didn't say they are Israel. Did you notice that? Interesting statement, too. Why doesn't he say they're Israel? Well, it's kind of interesting because if you look in verse 6, look, notice what he says. Not as though the word of God, the next verse that we, from where we stopped reading, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Israel. So here he calls them Israelites who are Israelites, but he's not saying that they are Israel. He says they are of Israel, but it doesn't mean they are Israel. Very important point here. But then he says, who are Israelites? So he's categorizing this entire group of people. Not, not those who are actually the believers, not those who are actually the redeemed, not those who are actually the elect here, as Paul would reference them, but rather, he says, Israelites. To whom, this entire group, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the ministry and worship of God, and the promises. So here he's saying this group 
Israelites, of Israelites, who are of Israel, or part of the nation of Israel, he says they were given the law. They were given the privilege of ministry unto God. They were given the privilege of worship unto God. They were given the oracles of God. So this is the people that are being spoken of. So let's look again at verse 5 of Jude. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how the people out of the land of Egypt. Did God save just the elect out of Egypt? Did he, no, he didn't save just the elect out of Egypt. He saved all of Israel out of Egypt that were alive at that time, did he not? In fact, it wasn't long before they were denying and murmuring and what happened. They were swallowed up into the earth alive. Do you remember that? Many of them. And none of them, with exception of Joshua and Caleb, entered into Canaan, or the promised land, victoriously, as you recall. So, But yet, did he not deliver them all? Yes. He delivered them all. So notice what he says again. He saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. So there it is. Afterward he destroyed, even after saving them out of Egypt, he then destroyed them because they did not believe. Jude begins this example of warning with a reminder. And he says in verse 5, notice, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this. Now let me say this before we move forward, because I brought all that into light and to your memory to explain or remind you of this truth. It was to Israel that the law was given. It was to Israel the oracles of God were given. It was to Israel that the promises were given. It was to Israel that that they were given the privilege and opportunity to worship the one true God. It was to Israel that all of these things were given. The prophets were sent to who? To Israel. The priests were given to who? To Israel. Are, Are you following this? Jude uses this example so fittingly in the first example of all of them. And do you know why? Because he says, it is to the church that the faith has once and for all been delivered. So just as the oracles of God of the Old Testament was given to the Old Testament Jews, to Israel, so the faith of Jesus Christ and the teaching of Christ, the revelation of Christ, has been handed down to the church. We have this, the faith. Notice, I will put therefore, therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this. So Jude begins this warning by explaining that these are truths of which the reader is familiar. And Jude is not teaching something new, neither is he warning against something peculiar to those to whom he wrote. Rather, Jude is simply reminding the reader of the importance to remain fervent in the faith and to not forget the example and the end of those who had come before them. Now, each of these examples which Jude provides includes distinct elements of which the reader is to heed. So let's look at verse 5, continue on in this one verse. Israel's exodus, which he uses first, is a reminder. He says, I'm putting you these things to your remembrance. I'm bringing them back to your mind. Though you knew this, I'm, I'm reminding you. And Israel's exodus, as used in this example, is a reminder of the danger of apathy concerning belief in the faith. Look at verse 5 again, moving on. 
how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. So unbelief, obviously, is prominent here, but also apathy concerning the faith, even as believers. Why does Jude say earnestly contend for the faith? Because it was, there was a great potential for the people to, come, to become apathetic or complacent concerning that which they were given. Think of it like this for a moment. You know, I, you've seen this before as well. There are videos literally of where there is an underground church in China, obviously, and has been for years, and where they are handed copies of the Bible for the first time. And it's not even necessarily their copy to keep. And they sit there and weep. Just, they've not even read it. It's just to hold it. Just to hold a copy of the Word of God. They weep. Let me ask you something. <laughs> And, and, and I'm, not, I'm in no way playing on your emotions here. I'm asking you a question to show you the truth of this. When's the last time you wept just to hold the Word of God? Maybe never, just to hold it. Now, you may open it and begin to rejoice and weep in its truth, which you should. But yet, the point being, these people are not apathetic towards the Scriptures. They are just joyful to have in their hands a copy of the Word of God. Are you following me? Listen, don't think for one moment. I'm not saying you need to go home and weep or ask God, why can't I weep over holding your Word? I'm not saying we should weep every time we hold the Scriptures. I'm not claiming that. I'm trying to show you that while we may sit here tonight and go, I'm not apathetic. I'm sitting in Bible study on Wednesday night. That's not apathy. And no, it's not necessarily. But hear me. There is a tremendous potential to become apathetic and complacent toward the truth of God, the Word of God, the faith, and even the himself do you not believe that that's true and we need to take warning of that because we are not beyond that so israel's exodus as used in this example is a reminder of the danger of this apathy that is exists and the potential for this and, and, and this first danger jude addressed is in this morning is the sin of apathy when we are not intentionally fervent see this is the point Earnestly contend, and I told you, this is about being fervent and intentional and purposeful concerning the faith. And the bottom line is simply that if we are not fervent concerning the faith, it can only mean we are becoming apathetic concerning the faith or complacent. Apathy and complacency are, complacency are certainly to become a problem when we are not intentionally fervent. Look, this is intentional. If you have God's Spirit dwelling within you, you have the Spirit of Christ within you, the Spirit of, of God the Father dwelling in you, and here we are, having given, been given everything pertaining to life and godliness and the Word of God, which is living, it's alive, it's transforming our lives, and yet we still have a tendency to become apathetic and complacent. There's that potential that is present without question. It is easy for us to give in to the temptation of being or becoming comfortable where we are. Really, is that not partially what, how we would define apathy itself? We are kind of comfortable. Think about this for a moment. You should not be just comfortable attending church services. You should not just be comfortable listening to preaching. You should not just be comfortable uh, simply praying alone. You should not just be comfortable with daily routine 
absent of intentionally living out the truth of the faith and in the faith, embracing the faith, and therefore declaring the truth of the gospel and living in that truth and desiring to know more of the truth of the gospel of Christ. We should be intentional in this. And if we are not, it's just simple. Either you are fervent, you are intentional concerning the gospel, concerning the faith, or you are complacent or at least becoming complacent and apathetic. It's just what it is. And such apathy is extremely dangerous. Simon Peter warned uh, and provided such a reminder as well in 2 Peter three seventeen and 18. Listen to what Peter said. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before. Isn't that what Jude just said? Beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Steadfastness, steadfastness here means safe position, and the root word means established or strengthened. So beware, lest you grow weak concerning these matters, unless you're not fervent in them. Verse 18 then provides the antidote to this. Notice what he says. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So here's the problem. The problem is we must beware because there is a danger to fall to the error of the wicked. There is a danger to allow unbelief to creep into our hearts and lives and be manifested. Not that our hearts have been turned from unbelief to belief, but that does not mean we cannot manifest unbelief. And here he is saying that we need to beware, but then the antidote to falling to this error and being weak, spiritually speaking, is in verse 18 when he says, but, and this of course is a contrasting conjunction, rather than this, do this. Rather, but, grow in grace. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how is it we do not, or how do we prevent apathy? How do we prevent complacency? We go to church more. No. we, We just listen to more preaching all the time. Well, that can be part of it. And of course, gathering for fellowship is part of it as well. How do we do this? How do we prevent apathy and complacency from creeping in? Even creeping in unaware, if you will. How do we do that? By intentionally growing in grace and the knowledge of our our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter provides the antidote to the problem in the verse. This is a tragic statement when considering the implications to the statement which Jude made when he said how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Remember, these were people God had delivered from the cruelty and bondage of the Egyptians. Remember, the Egyptians were cruel to them. They became cruel taskmasters. Many died under them, no doubt. Many were abused and beaten and mistreated, obviously. These also were people for whom God parted the Red Sea, that they might walk on dry ground through the midst of the sea and then drown the Egyptians. Do you remember that? These are the people who God had provided water to flow from the rock that followed them to sustain and satisfy them. And we know from the New Testament, as we'll read in a moment, that this rock was Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.4. These are the people to whom the Lord provided daily manna for their sustenance. And these people who were had not only seen, but as well experienced personally the miracles of God, and yet we are told that the Lord destroyed them that believed not. Paul warned of such apathy and unbelief in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13. Quite lengthy, but you need to hear this. Moreover, brethren, 
I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Are you see what Paul's saying here? All of them were guided by the Lord under the cloud. All of them passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, verse 5, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not, one, lust after evil things as they also lusted. Two, neither be idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Three, neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Four, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Five, neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happen unto them for in samples or examples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. That's us. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Notice, and we're not finished yet, but notice what Paul just said. He gives this warning, as did Jude. He gives a more detailed warning, but the same warning Jude gave. And he says, take heed, be careful, because as soon as you think that you're standing, you're going to fall. He goes on to say, though, listen to the beauty of what he states next. And Jude will do the same thing in a moment. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Notice the next statement. But God is faithful. So he's saying, take heed, take warning, lest you think you stand because you will fall. But wait a minute. Here's our confidence. See, if you can't, notice what Paul is saying here. You can't take confidence in how well you are doing. You can't place confidence in how faithful you believe you are being. He says, Take heed lest you fall. These warnings, understand how God worked miraculously in these Israelites' lives, and yet he was not pleased with them. But notice, in every case, what was the real issue? The real issue is they were never satisfied in God and in his provision. They were always wanting something else or something more or something different. So they were not at all appreciative in reality of what God was doing and had done, these of unbelief. And therefore, he says, take heed lest you fall. You cannot place confidence in how well you think you're performing. But here's where we can place our confidence. God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Even though the Lord had saved them out of the land of Egypt, and even though he had, they had not only seen but as well been a part of miracle after miracle, they still lived in unbelief. If Old Testament Israel could see all that they saw, and if they could experience all the mighty works of God and yet still live in unbelief, do we not think that men today can claim to be followers of Christ and yet by their life indeed still deny him? And even more so, do we not believe that apathy and complacency can easily creep into our own hearts and lives. 
concerning the faith. Biblical belief will produce a desire to continue in this faith. That is the truth of God. And we keep the faith because it is Christ who keeps us. So while we are commanded here in this, in this whole passage, chapter or verse 3, verse 4, and now verse 5 and 6 and 7 as well, about taking heed to, and, and considering these warnings that are examples for us, while we are commanded by Jude to intentionally engage the faith and live therein, as we read in Jude's further explanation, it is not we who keep ourselves, but it is Christ who keeps us. So just like Paul said, hey, consider these warnings and take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall, but God is faithful. Here Jude is saying, hey, take heed, earnestly contend, be intentional concerning the faith, don't miss this, don't misunderstand this, don't become apathetic, don't become complacent concerning the faith. Remember the examples that are before us and what happened to those who were, who were part of God's deliverance out of Egypt and yet they were not believers at all and they perished. Examine your own selves to see that you be in the faith and then engage the faith and live in the faith and declare the faith and defend the faith and so on. But notice, Jude does that which Paul did as well because Paul said, but God is faithful. And Jude says in verses 24 and 25, in concluding this letter, after saying, take heed, be cautious, don't follow, remember the examples before, you don't follow after them, but then he says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. You see what Jude says? You are to be intentional concerning the faith, but you understand, even as intentional as you may be concerning the faith, it is not you that keeps yourself in the faith or faithful to the faith. It is God who is able to present you faultless. It is God who is faithful to keep you and will not allow you to fall. And in the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy, you'll be presented to him. The only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. You know what you just did? He just said, look, you are to engage the faith. You are to be intentional. You are to be purposeful. You are to be cautious. You are to walk carefully. You are to remember the examples that are before you. You are to examine yourselves to see that you be in the faith as Paul charged and, and exhorted. But let me say to you as well, Jude says, God is faithful to keep those who are in the faith. God is faithful and he alone deserves the glory, the praise, the honor. So while we are to be intentional and we are to be purposefully living in the truth of the faith, the revelation of God to man as he has given it to us in his word, through his word, in the person of his son, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, realizing that without growth in grace and knowledge of Christ, we will surely fall and fail. So the antidote to such error is the truth of Christ and growing in that truth. As the scriptures declare, as Peter explained. But ultimately, we must remember the most faithful of men, the most faithful of women will never stand before God based on the merit of their faithfulness. We stand before God based on the merit of Jesus and His faithfulness. But yet we are also charged to beware 
lest we not remember this and fail to live in the truth of God's provision. Because remember, that's exactly what Israel was doing. When they murmured, why would they murmur? Because they didn't like the leadership God had given them. When they complained about the food, God was giving them everything they needed to sustain them, but they wanted something different. They didn't like God's provision. Are you following this? Whenever they were under the cloud and they came to the sea, they were saying, oh, it would have been better just to die in in Egypt because now now the Egyptians are following behind us and they're going to slay us all anyhow. Not trusting God's provision. And God provided time and time again. And what did Israel do? They found themselves never satisfied in the provision that God had made. Look, there's no better place for us to be as a body of Christ, as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who are of the faith, than to find ourselves totally satisfied in Christ. So, take heed, take warning, that you be not like Israel. And we'll move further into these other two examples, Lord willing, next week, at least one of them, if not both. But take heed and take warning that you not become apathetic. And, and one way as well, let me mention, because this all ties together, one way for us to, to not be apathetic, it, the antidote again is to gr- not fall into error, is to grow in truth and the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, obviously. But one way to practically as well understand a manner that wards off this, this temptation or this, this potential to be as great as it is, to become apathetic and complacent, is that we be genuinely, truthfully grateful and thankful for God's provision. Because when we are genuinely, earnestly thankful for the provision of God in Jesus Christ, what do we have to complain or gripe about? How can we become apathetic towards that which God has provided for us in Jesus? How could we possibly do that? But yet the potential still remains for us to do that. So let us take heed, let us take warning. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the opportunity again to open and study these truths from your word tonight. I pray that we might not only have an understanding of them, but Father, more importantly, that we would live in the truth of your word as it's been provided. That we might not be apathetic or complacent, but we might be grateful and thankful for this great provision you've made for Jesus. He is all sufficient. And we thank you that we have confidence in his sufficiency. So Lord, may we live therein unto your glory and honor. We pray and ask these things. Amen.